Hey everyone, and welcome back to SEO Convergence. We're back again, and it's time for part three of diversity and equity. Same players, same team, slightly different conversation. Let's do it. Mike, thanks so much. I love that idea of same team. That's something that we all, Jamila, Krista, yourself, myself, are devoting our life to, is creating that team. And today... We take our diversity and equity conversation and we move it into something that's necessary in every school system, in every community, and in our nation. Systemic change. The idea of moving beyond the slogan, moving beyond the current crisis, and moving into systemic change that will last to all of my young friends' children's lifetimes. That's my dream. So Krista, in your work in cultural competency, and Jamila, as your work in social work and counseling, work with the little ones, we know that Systems change within a school system takes anywhere from three to six years. And I've had the privilege to work with school administrators who have the courage to make that commitment. Krista, can you share with us, beginning with a a brief overview of what the six stages of cultural proficiency are, is? I'm not sure the proper grammar. I can Um, thank you, Tom. In the the second podcast, we were talking about the importance of needing to look at ourselves and analyze where we are at on this journey, and then we need to take it into onto the systemic level. And cultural competence is the ability to successfully teach students from different cultures. And the great thing about cultural competence is it works at two levels. It's on a personal level. So where am I at in my ability to successfully reach and teach all students? Um, and then what, what, how can we look at this on a systemic level in terms of what's happening in our, in our school culture um, to be able to reach and teach all students? And the pieces of, of cultural competence that I really appreciate is that it is a set of skills that can be learned if people are willing to embark on this journey. So it can be learned, it can be practiced, and it can be institutionalized to better serve all of the students. You may- so, so when you mentioned two words, skills and practice, that really inspires me because that's education. Yes. That's teaching and learning. So what do we need to be aware of first? Um, the book that I recommend that I was first introduced to about seven years ago is called Cultural Proficiency, A Manual for School Leaders. And it was written by Lindsay, Nuri, Robbins, and Terrell. Um, I would recommend using this book. It sets a foundation for culture in general. And they have 
a cultural competency continuum, and it's divided up into six different pieces. And at the one end, you have cultural destructiveness, and at the other end, you have cultural proficiency. And so when I look at this continuum, I identify where I am as an individual, being honest with myself about where I'm at and where I need to be. And then I encourage school leaders and school staff to look at where they think their classroom is, where they think their building is, and what are their next steps. So the first step is cultural destructiveness, and it's defined as eliminating the cultures of others. So as soon as you start there's um, any type of physical bullying, um, emotional bullying or mistreatment, things that go against that full value contract, we're in the destructiveness piece. When you have teachers who say they don't value education, they're marginalizing, that's destructive. The next level up is called cultural incapacity. Krista, forgive me for interrupting. Slow down because there's such important history in all of these stages that I want all of our listeners to be aware of. And I know you're a historian. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about cultural destructiveness, first of all, I think of the Holocaust. Yes. And it it amazes me that there is actually still some debate on whether or not that happened. And yet, you know, the, the, the structures of those, horrible horrible prisons and devices of torture are still there in remnants and our museums are there and when then we speak of cultural destructiveness i think of as early as the 1400s people from spain going to the coast of africa where there were sophisticated cultural kingdoms and enslaving those people. And of course, we took it to a much higher level here in the United States, enslaving and torturing and abusing. And some of that still continues today. And I even think of the genocide of the native people in the United States or North America, which the Northern tribes would call Turtle Island. And so I I want our listeners to be aware as Krista speaks about cultural destructiveness, there is the heartbreaking human history that I believe we all need to own a part of. Tom, this also, as as you're talking, if you think back to the Trail of Tears, think to in American history when we took land from the indigenous Americans or had them signing agreements that they didn't realize how vast that agreement was. Children were taken and their hair was cut. They were given a new language, new clothing. The Japanese internment camps during World War II the way that um, immigrants coming over to America, their names were changed through Ellis Island and through the islands um, off the coast of California to um, slaves down in the South who lost all of their tribal heritage. Um, And what that looks like 
So I'm glad you brought this up because I did go over it very quickly. What that looks like in schools too is signs on doors that say speak English here. Yeah. Or you can't wear this particular type of clothing or this type of a head covering um, that might be related to religion. So it's, it's standing the culture of the schools and how that is misaligned with culture of our students and families in the community. Thank you, Krista. Thank you for those additions. And then, so, so I would ask our listeners to do what we always do, you and I together and our friends that we had the privilege to work with, is to self-reflect, to assess, you know, wh- where, where is our school system? Are there still some of the signs that Krista just mentioned? Do we need to be aware that there's still some cultural destructiveness in our schools. And once we're aware of that, Krista, and we begin to take some action, what's the next step we move to? The next step is called cultural incapacity, um, where there's a trivializing or stereotyping of other cultures. Mm. There is an, an apparent hierarchy where it's not an outright destructiveness of a culture or an elimination of it, but there is definitely a hierarchy where um, some uh, people believe they have more power or more authority um, or more um, correctness over another group of people. Can you give us one or two examples of what that may look like in school? Because I think that is still happening. It is. Um, one of the things that comes to mind was well, two things here. Um, one, I worked with the teacher at a former school district who said, um, I'm successful working with the normal kids. Mm. I need to be working with them. And okay. in, he was referring to were the students who are in the honors and the college prep courses. So his cultural incapacity was a stereotyping of any student who was not in his classes. Um, and so he was seeing them, his implicit bias was not seeing them as worthy or as equal to all other learners. And we know that we're diverse in so many different ways and learning and the ways that we learn and the amount of time it takes us to learn different things is just one of those ways. What a powerful statement that I'm sure rippled out to devalue so many students in that school. So if, if, if this person's normal was gifted honors college prep that would have made me not normal because mm-hmm. I was none of those things in high school. Um, one of the other pieces here, and I know Jamila, if you feel like jumping in, you and I've had conversations around this is um, questioning the qualifications of a person in whatever role they have within the school system or within the class. Um, not believing that that person is qualified to do that type of job, that there was a certain cultural reason why that person did or did not get that job. Yes, I have. Uh, I have experienced it firsthand of um, the questions of my qualifications. Even when I go back to um College, my dad dropped me off for the um, the placement exam. 
And I, um, I walked into the building and I was a regular admittance, but the, who he was a college student, probably maybe a sophomore or junior has said to me, Oh no, the EOF room is this room. So he had looked at me and assumed that I was an EOF, which is, um, equal opportunity funding, um, students. And typically they were minority students. And, um, my dad jumped to say, no, she's here based on her academics, not based on her color. And she's a regular admitting student. But that's like my, the first memory that I had that I can really remember, remember of someone just looking at me and assuming that, oh, you had to be in one of those special numbers to, um, to let you in as opposed to me earning a right to, um, to be there. But then even as, you know, I, I have my um, master's in social work. I have my school principal and supervisor certifications. And I have had the questions asked of, um, of those qualifications. And Jamil, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jamila and Krista, isn't that still happening today? Isn't that still happening with our br- black and brown children today? Why, why are there a less percentage in our gifted classes, in our honors classes? Please, my friends, talk to us about that. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting when you bring up the whole gifted um, classes. My son, he had been in, um, in private school um, until fifth grade. Fifth grade, he had started in public school in my town. And he's in a class and he finds out that some of his classmates were being pulled out. Um, it wasn't called the gifted that year. It was another type of a program, but that's pretty much what it was um, preparing him for. And he had said, well, so-and-so is pulled out. I want to get pulled out too. Now, my background of being in education, I didn't want to be one of those parents that said, I want my son tested because he is gifted because I've been on the receiving end of parents who have said it <laughs> and they haven't been 100% accurate and their um, assessment of their own child. Uh, so I didn't want to be one of those parents. I said, you know, um, we'll see. So first market, market period comes through and he has like all A's and a couple of B's. And I said, well, that was first market period. Let's see how second market period goes. And he comes home, second market period, straight A's. So he advocated for himself. But I was hoping deep down that a teacher would on their own identify yes. him. yes. And um, not to knock any of those teachers that year because he, he did, they switched around. They had a home-based teacher, but they switched for a couple of classes. But I was really hoping that it will be on a teacher. And I'm not sure if it was because it was his first year in the school, if they didn't, if it didn't just click for them that, okay, there's something different about it. Like, you know, he's doing this work. Let's, let's get him tested. But it took him fifth grade. He was 10 years old advocating for himself. Um, to be tested and he was tested and he did, you know, uh, he was admitted into the program, but I do see it oftentimes just from the, um, school district employee perspective. And I see that people will not, um, they don't view black and brown children as they'll see the skill, but they don't address it. It's almost like it's just that they're looking for behaviors from the child as opposed of tuning into 
the strengths of what, what they're seeing. They're, they're looking, they're expecting, and oftentimes they will see behaviors, but it's because they're not being challenged. But they zoom in on the behavior and not think that they're academically strong enough to, um, to go into one of the gifted programs. Yeah, there's tremendous research and literature that backs up what Jamila's experience has been. And it's either an understanding that, or an implicit bias that they're looking for the negative behaviors, or they think maybe it's an anomaly or it's an overlooked piece. And it also speaks to why we need to have more diverse teaching staff, because they have shown that when you have a more diverse teaching staff, more of our black and brown students are identified correctly for the gifted program. That, that goes back to that basic human need for connection. We all want to connect. So, so thank you. Uh, Krista, I see that the, the third stage is entitled cultural blindness. And I, I want to wait for your teaching here, but my guess is we have a lot of that right now. We do. And it's not, in my opinion, this is what I was taught 25 years ago as an undergrad. We used to think this was the best approach. And so many teachers who are my age, and I'm going into my 23rd year of education, were said, where we focused on um, equality, not equity. And so we said, we need to see everybody as the same. We're all the same. We treat everybody the same. And so we had this idea that universally treating people the same and giving them the same um, resources, the same supports is what was necessary to show our acknowledgement. But what we found is that in, we actually are not acknowledging the history and, and the identity that comes with students when we make the assumption of everybody being the same. I also think that looking at the assumption of everybody being the same goes back to our conversation in podcast two, that we assume everybody has the same experiences that we did then. Because we think like, oh, well, this was my experience. This is everybody else's as well. Um, and so we have, because of our cultural socialization, a very clear understanding of what we think is right and wrong and disobedience and disrespect and compliance and noncompliance, which leads to cultural mismatches that happen in schools. Um, we dismiss somebody. So this goes back to Jamila talking about validate my experiences. Oh no, you just don't, you're just over-exaggerating or though that's not really true. And it goes from there all the way to outright misconceptions like about history books, whitewashing or an understanding that in our country, oh, Cinco de Mayo, it's when all of Mexico became independent and no, no, that's really not it. Let's have a deeper level understanding of what we celebrate from other cultures or we elevate. And this was a huge learning for me. One of the pivotal points in my cultural competence journey was about religion. And my friend who is Jewish saying, Hanukkah is not a big deal for us in terms of relationship to other holidays, but America elevates it to put it on par with Christmas. And it doesn't belong there because it's not as important as some of the other high holy days. But our society tries to equalize 
holidays and experiences and celebrations and an attempt to make it universal when we don't really have that depth of understanding yet. So is this that stage that we hear from, I'm going to, I'm going to say, well-intended people when they say, I don't see color? Yes. Can, can, can both of you help us dig into that a little bit more and, and, and what we need to do in our schools around that statement? So this is a statement I'm not crazy about at all. Um, I love color. And um, to say you don't see color, do you not see the colors in the rainbow? Do you not see the colors of, of, of the leaves and of the flowers? Do you not see? So, you know, unless someone is telling me they see no color, everything is grayscale through their eye, through their lens. Um, to say to a person of color, to say to me, a black woman, I don't, I don't, I don't see color. Well, you don't see me. Mm. You don't see um, the, the, the skin, the, the caramel skin tone that I have. You don't see the brownness in my eyes. You don't see what makes up who I am. So you don't see me. And that's, it's actually, it's invalidating of me as, as a person, as an individual. Um, I've hated it. I, I just, and I, and I understand where it comes from. It's, it's to, to try to justify the, why well, just, it's everyone's equal. Everyone's equal. But that has nothing to do with not, not recognizing the characteristics of, um, of each individual person and appreciating them. Hmm. Really well said. I love that. I love appreciating them. You know, to be able to look out on our classroom of students and appreciate each of those beautiful individuals with their different skin tones, with their different ethnicities, with their beautiful, vast, different cultures. What a rich classroom that would be. What a rich and meaningful world we can have. So, so here we are in stage three, Krista. We're about halfway through. And now we're starting to really hit on some things that are, that are in a lot of people's experience. And this is, I think 20 years ago, we would have said, okay, if you're in cultural blindness, it's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. And from what I've read and what I keep reading is this is not okay to be here. You should not be, if this is where you're at, you've got work to do. Well, we've just learned, as you cited, some historical examples and some religious examples, Cinco de Mayo and Hanukkah. It's an incorrect place to be. Yes. And as Jamila just beautifully shared with us, it's a disrespectful place to be. Unintended or not, you know, as your favorite poet Maya Angelou says, yep. when you know better, you do better. So here we are halfway through, and now we know a little better. Yes. Where, what else do we need to know? <laughs> so this is one of my, I actually really enjoy this next piece because I spent a lot of time here <laughs> myself. And this is called cultural pre-competence. Mm. You want to help. You understand that cultural blindness is not, you know you're on a journey. You want to be on this journey but you lack the knowledge 
and the awareness of where to go next. And so inevitably what ends up happening is you're learning and you're trying to grow, but this is where you're going to be making those mistakes, right? This is where you try to help and you mess up and you're like, oh, oh. So this was a really hard part for me to move through. And sometimes I go back here. So here's the other interesting thing is I think that sometimes like I'm, I'm further along, but then a certain event will happen and I find that I'm sliding back. And um, so I've been back and forth in this one. And this is, again, the desire to help, but just lacking the, the background. And so it could be the policy, the practices, the knowledge to move forward. And so one of the first things, again, my aha learning was I was talking to a new friend who was from Puerto Rico and she didn't, in my stereotypical mind of what it meant to be Puerto Rican, was dark hair, dark eyes. And she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And the first question out of my mouth, once we started talking is, well, where are you from? And as soon as I said it, I'm like, oh no, that's not what I meant. And I, I think I even maybe said to her, like, where were you born? And she's like, I was born in the US. And I'm like, oh no, I really did like, oh, I just wanted to take it all back. Um, this is where we're like, we're moving forward. We're going to embed and celebrate Black History Month. We're going to celebrate Women's History Month. We're going to celebrate um, LGBTQ community in this month. And so we have specific days to focus on diversity, specific months to focus on diversity. And that is a good start, but it's not where we should stop because it needs to be part of every single day, every month. The other piece here is as soon as somebody says, well, I'm not racist, I have friends who are black. I'm not sexist, I have friends who are, you know, um, non-conforming, gender non-conforming. Um, and reading White Fragility and reading How to Be an Anti-Racist changed my perspective of what it means to be a racist. It's not a person, it is an action. So at any one time of my life, I can say something that is racist or sexist or classist, and then I need to, to own it and move forward. And this is, as soon as somebody gives me this defensiveness piece, I'm like, okay, this is where we're at and we need to do some work. Um, can I jump in a second? Because you, you just said something so important. We are human. We're going to make mistakes. If we can just come from a place of truth to look at a fellow human being and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And, and really mean that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I hope you heard it in my tone of voice. And so that goes back to the Maya Angelou, then do better next time. Right. It's okay to mess up once, but if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, it's not a mistake. See, one of the things that concerns me is I, I, I believe that many of our colleagues are afraid to enter this world. They're afraid to enter this dialogue because they don't want to do anything wrong. Well, then we're going to stay right where we are. And so here's another, Jamila, I'm going to put you on the spot because we've had great conversations around um, as females in a professional world, what does that mean for us and how we prepare for a professional setting? 
And so I know we've talked about dress, we've talked about hairstyles, and this is something too that I think falls into the cultural precompetence, like a desire to help, but a misunderstanding of like, where is your right to like help somebody versus like you've crossed a line and it's not really yours to comment on. So <laughs> I'm thinking about the the hair thing. That was a big one for, for, um, for a bit. I have, um, so I have my principals and supervisor certifications and I've applied into some administrator uh, positions and in preparing for the interview, I've I've gone the route of I have for the listeners, I have returned I've returned to my natural um, hair texture what eight years ago, and that just means I'm no longer using um, chemicals to straighten my hair. My hair is naturally coily. Um, in preparation for interviews, I've gone on the interviews totally embracing my coils because I've been embracing them on a daily, daily, day-to-day basis. But after not getting through uh, to the next round of interviews, and I remember this one interview in particular, um, I was told, well, the committee, they just didn't think it was a right fit. And I didn't think about my personality. I didn't think about any of those things not being the right fit. Um, I think at that time there was a lot of comments being made to me about my hair and how much more professional I look when I blow my hair out as opposed to the the coils. And so in my head, I'm thinking not a right fit. Was it about my hair? And I had for a couple of months, um, and I recovered from it, but for a couple of months, I kept thinking, all right, the next interview I go on. I'm going to make an appointment. I'm going to go get my hair blown out and I'm going to see, I'm just going to try to do a little case study and see if I'll get to the next level with straight hair, as opposed to, uh, to having my, my coils. Um, it never worked. It never worked out. So I never got a chance to, I didn't have enough time in between, um, another interview to be able to, to straighten my hair. But that is something that I am thinking it's an ongoing. I think ahead when I do have an interview, Will I have the time to do that? Um, how can I pull my hair back or in such a way where it will look more professional and not intimidate um, that someone won't think that I'm overly Afrocentric and so I'm going to come in with this overly Afrocentric personality and, and change things in their, their school setting. Uh, but that's, in addition to choosing, like thinking about your clothing, I focus so much more on well, what am I going to do with my hair for that particular interview or presentation where I can, do I need to tone myself down? That is a something, an ongoing question that I've had to ask myself prior to um, certain engagements. Jamila, I hope our listeners just heard that. Our friend just said, listen, our brilliant, highly educated, deeply caring friend Jamila just said, tone myself down. I bet you every listener out there has been encouraged to be all they can be to put their best forward. And here I have this wonderful, dear human being that I know and care about 
goes in an interview, how do I tone myself down? I hope you're hearing what I'm hearing. There's something not right about that. Um, that's connected too to what Jamila mentioned in um, our second podcast about the stereotype of an angry black woman. Yep. And when I get angry, which it doesn't happen very often in Jamila, I don't think I've ever really heard you angry, <laughs> but it's a thought in your head that you have to monitor your feelings and your emotions for other people. Yeah. I don't have that that regulation that I need to think about and the amount of thought that, and, and mental energy that takes up. Um, and so I think that part of this pre-competence is a deep understanding of what reality is for other people. Um, and how does that manifest in our classrooms and in conversations and in dialogue with, you know, I know, people just giving their opinions of other people's hair. And like, I think you look professional this way. And, you know, I don't really know that that's other people's place. Yeah. Yeah. To do that. And, you know, as you're both speaking, I'm reflecting on not only the challenges of black and brown women, but I'm reflecting on the challenges of being a woman period. So a white man can be angry and be respected, which totally baffles me, but we see it every day in the news. So once again, we come back to the need for social emotional learning for all of us. And as we move from this stage of cultural pre-competence, where do we go next? I'm I'm hoping that we start to, we're starting to learn now. Yeah, so cultural competence is fully accepting, respecting, and including different views on a regular basis so that that healthy and positive interactions can flourish and take place. So this is in the school system, you're seeing co-teaching partnerships, which I had the great privilege of participating in for a number of years um, to meet students' needs, that instead of students being removed from my classroom to go to a separate class that used to be in at the end of a hall or in the basement, <laughs> Now you're not allowed to do that. There are push-in programs where kids get to be in the learning environment with their peers. Um, Here we're talking about in direct opposition to that they don't value education to tell me what you value. Tell me where your expertise lies in the parents and families and communities and linking that to create relevant, meaningful learning experiences where families are part of that process, where it's not the school having all of the ownership and the expertise, but it's a shared collaborative um, space. And then going into what Jamila was talking about in the last podcast too here, Ensuring that students see themselves and people see themselves in the curriculum and represented properly, correctly, 
that it's night not whitewashed and that they see themselves in the work around the room in leaders who represent their culture they see their their families being honored all the time not just in a particular month i'm dreaming a dream wouldn't it be incredible to plan our professional development and plan our school year in collaboration with parents and children. Yes. Yes. True community. Yep. I had an experience, uh, might've been last year, it might've been two years ago, I don't remember now where we were in a, I was in a parent session facilitating a discussion on social emotional learning. And as often happens in suburban Southeastern Pennsylvania, the larger majority were, were white women. Uh, there were a few black men and a few black women. And one of the white women, we were, probably talking about social awareness at that point in time. And she spoke confidently saying, I'm just really happy to live in a school where there is no racism. And it just so happened that I was looking at one of the black women at that time and I could see her eyes moistening. And she started to speak and, she, and with, with, with beautiful strength and courage, she said, I'm a doctor of a doctorate in psychology. I practice psychology every day in my private practice. I help people every day. And now the tears began to come down her cheeks and she said, I am afraid every single day when I let my babies go to school. There is racism in our community. There is racism in our school. And now her truth opened up the vulnerability and the tears of other people in that room. And it was an exquisite learning moment. I've been afraid to send my, my you know, my kids are, my kids are almost your age. I probably said that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> uh, my kids are all in their late 30s. And I've been afraid to send my kids to school because of bullying issues. I've never been afraid to send my kids to school because of racism. And that's still real in our country. That's still real in our school systems. I don't know if either one of you want to speak to that or not. I think one of the links that we have is being mom to teenage boys. And it breaks my heart because I know our conversations with our boys are different. And so people I've had people say to me, 
in, in, a, in a snappy way, I bet you teach your boys that they're privileged. And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> they are privileged and not because of anything that they did, but because of the way that society views them and they need to understand that they have a very different experience than some of their friends. And my experience as mom is very different than Jamila's experience as mom. It most certainly, um, it most certainly is. And I started having conversations with, um, with my son distinctly. I remember first grade and it was just, um, we were at a, at a birthday party and he was jumping, was, uh, jumping on the furniture as all the other boys were doing. He was the only black boy. And I gave him the look and we moms know what that look is. And he, he, he stopped. Um, but on the way home from the birthday party, I, so I was viewing it differently. I was looking at it just from a whole different dynamic that day. And I said, you can't behave the way you see everyone else behaving. You see kids running around. They were running around at the house. They were jumping on, on the furniture. One, you're not even allowed to jump on furniture at home like that. Um, but two, the cuteness is going to wear off. It's not gonna, you're not going to be, oh, this cute little boy anymore. There will be people who will view you as a threat, who will view you as being an animal, a savage. And I need for you to not fit in that to, 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 to give them that stereotype. So I'm going, I'm holding you to a different um, standard. I had white friends who said, you're so tough on him. And I'm like, I have to be tough on him. I need him to live. I need him to, to grow, become, you know, this, this um, adult that's um, safe and secure in society that's independent. But most, most importantly, I need him to live. Like that is, that's my, my daily prayer. Like come back home alive. And so if that's me saying to him, you have to, you have to be on your best behavior. You can't give off um, an image that you are um, a delinquent of any kind. Now, Will your friends be viewed as, oh, that's just boys being boys? Absolutely. And is it unfair? Absolutely. But most importantly, I just need for you to live. But that started in first grade. And that's, it's sad. It breaks my heart thinking back to me having this conversation with a six-year-old, not as full in detail as age appropriate, but that I had to have certain conversations with him starting that young. And each year it just grew. And it grew to go along with his age and development just for him to, to be aware and to, to, to recognize that. Thank you, Jamila. Jamila and Krista, given that example, given what Jamila needed to do to begin to plant the seeds in her son at that time to keep him alive, is there anything that schools and teachers can do to help in that same effort? You know, I would think, and it will go back again to that self-awareness um, piece. And maybe if there were even um, some type of a, an assessment where they can take, where maybe they don't even realize that they're looking and projecting onto their black and brown students, particularly the boys, 
Um, I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Um, certain behaviors, and it's so much more magnified when it's coming from um, a black or brown boy. And what is that? Like, you know, Krista, you were saying you recognize certain things and you're, you're noticing everything that's happening within your body. Like the, you know, you're tensing up what those are things that we need to kind of be aware of in order to make that change in order to say, okay, I'm going to go against that. I'm, I'm going to, I know this is what my body is saying for me to tense up and to go and verbally reprimand that boy, that black or brown boy for doing the exact same thing that another boy is doing. I, I um, mentioned to a teacher before, I'm like, you do realize that particular child, he's coming in your classroom on a Monday and yes, he is revved up and he's running around that classroom. Do you know that he lives in a neighborhood where he doesn't get to go outside? So all of that energy that's cooped up in him all weekend long when he's in the house because his neighborhood is not safe. And it's not anything for people to then assume that that's every, everyone's story. But just look at it from a different lens. He's just getting out. That, that testosterone is just built up. He needs to run. And your recess time isn't until 12 o'clock. It is 9 o'clock in the morning. He has to get it. He has to get it out. Uh, so just recognizing that and then fighting hard to not give in to, um, to what your body is saying <gasps> I have a problem with that. It's making me nervous. Like recognize that and challenge yourself with it. So we go back to self-awareness. We go back to professional development. And we go back to education. And one of the things I think about too, like as a classroom teacher, now I was a classroom teacher for 10 years. And so I haven't been a classroom teacher in a while but I've worked in classrooms and I've worked with students. And I think it's incredibly important to, to get, to have processes and procedures in your classroom where all students get to interact with each other. That there is that, um, and this is gonna go off a little bit, but I've been reading a lot about these learning pods that looking at the start of the school year here, if our kids can't go back to school online parents of young kids are creating agreements with other friends who have young kids to social distance and let their six kids play together and learn together. And what this is end up, and I am, as a mom, I'm all for that and I understand it. But as somebody who's hyper aware of equity and diversity, we need to expand those learning pods and ensure that it's not all the same type of culture in that pod. Otherwise, we're reinforcing what's happening in schools anyway. So if you're going to do a learning pod, ensure that your kids branch out and look at who you're friends with. Look at the learning experiences you offer your kids, the books that you read, um, the pairings that you have in your class. And I think that as an educator, it's our duty, our responsibility to ensure that kids get a chance to know each other and know each other from different cultures and not just let kids pick because we're naturally going to go with people that we know or that we feel are more like us. So it's our duty, it's our responsibility to to build that emotionally safe school and classroom community. Even if if it, it might be this pod or it could be in the virtual environment. 
I love those words. It is our responsibility, which, which for me leads us to stage six, cultural proficiency. It's our responsibility. Yeah. And, and for me, the way I look at this last stage is that you're using data and research to inform your policy and educational practices. That And data doesn't just have to be quantitative. It can be the qualitative pieces as well, that you know you're collecting what has worked in contexts that are similar to yours, and you know what is good for the generalized group of students. So some of the examples here are that we know if you have a non-discrimination policy, there are natural logical consequences for when students disregard them. So for instance, a school district, Tom, you and I worked with, that it took them a while to be able to say, you cannot fly a Confederate flag on the school property on the back of your truck. I remember. Because that is sending a message to a group of students. We also know that when, you, when schools have a GSA, a gay straight alliance in their school, as early as middle school, that the likelihood of students who will attempt to take their lives will decrease. We know that Say when- Say that again. Say it again. Well, when there is a gay straight alliance in a school, even at the middle school level, as students are forming more of their sexual identity, having that club available and that support system leads to a decrease in students attempting to take their lives. Thank you. Students' lives. That's research. We know this. Yep. We know that when you detrack, it's okay. Research has shown you can have an AP honors level for some kids. And I mean some, not some, I'm not meaning for white kids. I mean for anybody who wants to take that level, who wants to take that level. Not that there's doors that they have to, and hoops they have to jump through. And for students who need specialized support in small groups, everybody else in between, there should be no basic level track. There should be one track for everybody. We know that that will elevate success for all students. So that when students are in school buildings that reflect the diversity of the entire community, students will better network, have better community resources, and have access to better school resources, teachers, and achieve better. There shouldn't be a school district in your there shouldn't be a school in your school district that is identified as the black school, the brown school, the students of lower socioeconomic status. That should not happen. And we need to look at resources that enhance a very inclusive curriculum, which might mean that curriculum in one area of Pennsylvania looks different than another, and that's okay. What we need outside of Philly is different than what New Jersey needs in the particular area that Jamila works or in California, or in North Dakota. So, as we get ready to bring a close to our third session, Jamila and Chris, I'd like you to think for a moment. I'm a teacher getting ready now to go back to school. My first concern, 
I don't know how I'm going back to school. I might be going back virtually. I might be going back hybrid. I might be going back in person. And like your lives, two moms, my world's upside down. I want to go back and give my best. I care about children. I care about Black Lives Matter. I might teach math, science, social studies, language, arts, or something else. What's one thing that will best serve me that I need to be doing now to best serve the children I teach? Right now in this moment, I'd say get out a journal and as much as you possibly can, think about your different students. And I know for some, they won't be getting the same students that they may have had the previous year. But you, it's on your roster. I know parent, teachers can now have access to see um, the students that are on their roster. But take a, take a look, take a, take a walk through. Do some searching on social media to see, um, looking for your students. Not to friend them, please hear me. Not to friend request <laughs> your students. But to just kind of, be curious and, and see what's, what's happening in their world. What are, what are some of their posts? What are they sharing about? And then journal some of the things of, well, I wonder what it's like. If I, can put, if I can put on their shoes in this moment, in this journal entry, what would help me if I were that, if I were that student coming in? What would help me from the teacher? What me receiving from that teacher? What would help me? And, and start journaling about that. Each, in the, each page should be maybe a, each individual student. And then go back and read it. And then make an effort to go in and to be what those students will need. Thank you, Jamila. Krista? I'm like, yes, that was awesome. <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> yeah, identify where you're at. Identify where your students are at and what they need and fill in that gap, close that gap. Jamila, I love what you said, be that person. That's why you got into this profession and don't leave any of those kids out, those students out, hmm. all of them. It all means all, each student, yes. every single one of them. When both of you say be that person, I'm reflecting on, on Gandhi's statement, be the change you want to see in the world. Be the change you want to see in the world. Read, read, read. Listen, listen, listen. And when you see an injustice, act. And you see something you can fix, fix it. And when you hear a voice that's not being heard, speak up and help that person speak up. Cultural competency now is a book Krista's holding up and showing me. I've been reading this book um, lately as we're in the middle of the culturally responsive teaching course. And it's written by Vernita Mayfield. It says 56 exercises to help educators understand and challenge bias, racism, and privilege. And Tom, you can see how much I've marked it up already. Yep. And that's not even just the writings inside. This has been one of the best books that I've gotten. It just came out, I think, in May. And I would recommend teachers 
um, also get the book to look through activities on what they can use in their classroom. Thank you, my friends. As, as Jamila mentioned in a previous podcast, uh, we do have the absolute privilege of working with schools across North America. Uh, if you enjoyed Jamila's voice, Krista's voice, we can make them available to you. I'd be thrilled to work with you. My friend Mike would be thrilled to work with you. Mike, thank you so much for producing again. Jamila, Krista, thank you for your courage and wisdom. Have a wonderful school year, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.